I'm Nicole Matthews, corporate America dropout turned entrepreneur and owner of The Henley Company, an event travel and lifestyle management firm. It wasn't that long ago that I was dreading my drive to my fancy corporate job each day or felt disenfranchised with the work I was doing. In 2007, I jumped off the corporate escalator and directly into the elevator of opportunity. Today, I'm an author, speaker, educator, and serial asker. I wholeheartedly believe that your life changes when you start creating your own opportunities and making big asks. Hands down, the business and life I have today is 100% the product of giving myself permission to design the life I want to live. It was always my dream to work at the Olympics, and by making a big ask, that dream became a reality. I now have multiple Olympic projects to add to my life resume. I created the Big Ass Podcast to share these best practices with you. Whether you're an entrepreneur hungry for revenue generating tips or an individual restless to make a significant change, the life you want to live could be just one big ask away. Get ready to be entertained by real life stories, no filter conversations, and inspired by the daily hustle. So let's get started. This is the Big Ass Podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Big Ass Podcast. I'm Nicole Matthews, and I'm here today um, with my industry colleague, Andrea Michaels, owner of Extraordinary Events. And I'm thrilled to have this opportunity to talk to Andrea. She is one of those legends in the event industry. And so the fact that I get to spend the next uh, half hour to 45 minutes with her, learning more about her career and just thanking her for the impact that she's made on uh, the industry is a real thrill for me. So, Andrea, welcome to the Big Ass Podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, thank you so much. So um, we always start by just giving us a little bit of background. So um, I, I have followed your career um, since I was young in the, in the industry. But for those who don't know, tell us just a little bit about, um, about, your, uh, about your background. Well, are you wanting to know about my background or are you wanting to know about my industry background? Because they're both quite different. <laughs> well, let's go. Let's let's go back to uh, to little Andrea and uh, talk about that first. <laughs> um, I was born in a concentration camp during World War II on the island of Rab in Croatia. Uh, when I was several weeks old, my mother and my grandparents and I escaped the camp on a fishing boat and went into hiding in Italy for a few. My mother met and married an American pilot who, if anybody is old enough to remember, John Derrick, who was like the heartthrob of the time. This man was the spitting image. And she moved with him to the United States and left me behind in Italy with my grandparents. When I was about seven years old, my grandmother got quite ill with tuberculosis. And so she sent me over to my mother. So I came over on a boat, which I later defined as a big whale. <laughs> but the pictures you see kind of of steerage, you know, there were like mm -hmm. six people in a cabin and I was one. And then I flew from New York to LA and met a woman I didn't know who was my mother. Uh, subsequently, she divorced the pilot and she married a refugee from Germany, who had lived in the Shanghai ghetto for seven years. Uh, we lived in Hollywood, which Hollywood was a beautiful community at the time. It wasn't what everybody thinks of movie stars and red carpet and all that. It was filled with directors and writers and creative people. 
And I was like the popular kid in class and everybody was accepted. But my parents wanted to buy a house and the only thing they could afford was in a community called Burbank, which is now a media capital, but at the time was probably similar to what you would imagine the Deep South. It was GIs who'd returned from the war. Anybody with an an accent was suspect. We were Jewish. So we were Jews, eight Jewish families in the entire city and very ostracized at school. We kind of credit that to being an overachiever because it was like, to heck with you. I'm going to show what I, who I am. And also craving recognition from the mother who had, I'd say in my mind, it sort of abandoned me. Grew up in a German-speaking household, so my parents only spoke German at home, which made my friends very suspicious when we were in mm-hmm. grade school and middle school. Uh-huh. So sort of interesting. I got, I, I had an early career both in writing and in sales, and by early career, I mean eight or nine years old. I, uh, <laughs> I was bored, so I said, way for one of these mail order sell dresses door to door. And of course, they had no idea that they were dealing with an eight-year-old. And I'm the money. And when the first check arrived, my parents were flabbergasted because they didn't know anything about it. But I didn't know it couldn't be done. And at the same time, I was writing books. And I actually wrote a script for, again, you'd have to be pretty old to remember this, David Niven, who was one of the four stars of something called Four Star Theater when there were only three TV channels. And I wrote a script in longhand, and it was the story of a man and his umbrella on a foggy street. And they bought it. And they came to my house and thought, of course, it was my mother or father, and then was introduced to this child <laughs> it had written this script and it actually was produced on Four Star Theater. I think oh I paid $50 for it. Um, so that was early. Um, went through high school again, just trying to overachieve. Got interested in journalism and went to work in um, as editor of my school paper, but also had the opportunity to edit the teen section for the LA Herald Examiner for the Hearst Corporation Mm -hmm. and a lot of time with the Hearst family, including up at San Simeon, Mm -hmm. was a pretty rare opportunity for a 16-year-old. Sure. Um, Being a little bit of a liberal in a conservative environment, I wanted to get away and go to school and chose Berkeley during the free speech movement. Mm-hmm. Which is in place to be, and that studied journalism and political science, and just enjoyed being away, and then moved back to LA because I fell in love, and went to UCLA, um, and dropped out of school to put my husband through school, which we did, and then later after I got divorced, I went out and got a degree in criminal psychology, which is what I practiced working for the Youth Authority with Gangs in Compton. Okay. So what I see on TV, what you see on TV, was all that on steroids. Um, but it taught me how to deal with clients. It taught me employees. 
because psychology is psychology and people are people. Mm-hmm. And understanding communication skills on all levels, no matter what we choose as a career, is so important. And I think so much missing today. Yeah. Excuse me. Sure. That's amazing. So when you get put on the boat, are you by yourself? You're making this crossing by yourself. Your grandmother has put you on the boat, but you're arriving in America as a seven-year-old by yourself. Exactly. And then somebody was responsible enough for you to put you on an airplane to Los Angeles. Yes, I was met by someone who was hired. Uh, someone on the boat was hired to watch over me, but it was a okay. Okay. That person, I imagine, I really don't remember, um, was responsible for putting me on the plane, which I swore never left the ground. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Amazing. And, you're, and you speak only German at this point? Uh, when I arrived, I spoke Italian, German, and Croatian. Croatian, okay, but no uh, English, obviously, no, no English. Pilot, stepfather at the time, very American, very patriotic, said not a word of it. What an amazing um, foundation of sort of the, uh, the, the grit that it would take to endure something at, like that at such a young age. I mean, making that physical crossing from old world to new world. Um, I can just only imagine the kind of the foundation that laid for you as you, as you, as you grew older. I think that um, in many ways, there were things that in the world where I ultimately ended up, which is mm-hmm. meeting that understanding cultures, understanding racism, anti-Semitic behavior, Mm -hmm. um, the fact that worlds were very different, the world that I was living in at home versus what the outside world was like was so different. And I know that when we all started doing international events, I think that one of the um, most challenging parts for most people was understanding that you had to accommodate a different culture Mm -hmm. and particularly with an international group, how the needs varied. But I grew up with that. Mm -hmm. So it was never a challenge. It was just something I took for granted. Sure. He has a different way of looking at just about everything. And you had to understand it and you had to respect it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, yeah, that's such a gift for you, um, like you said, for the industry that you ultimately went into. I mean, what, a, what an advantage that that world perspective gave you as you were navigating your career. I think so, although I didn't, like all kids growing up, yeah. we appreciate, appreciate it. Mm-hmm. what time and where we can use it later on. And I think that is something so important for young people today, getting into the industry, where they're yeah. so in tune with not really communicating, but communicating in mm-hmm. sort of text messaging and all that, and just not really understanding the perspective of what's on the other end of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And especially where we are right now in the in the crossroads of what's happening just in society in general. You know, it's not even just about understanding, you know, what's important of understanding what's beyond our borders, but also what's happening within our borders too, and those different perspectives. 
for Absolutely. sure. Signaling gives you a different political mm-hmm. outlook too, which I realize is probably not an appropriate thing to talk about. But if more people could understand how very important it is to allow opinions of others mm-hmm. without this vitriol that is going on right now, but to understand no matter what, everybody is entitled mm-hmm. to their opinion without fear of being demolished in the process or losing friends over it. And yeah, I see a lot of that happening and I'm, I do understand why, but when you've come from a background of persecution and you lived with parents who, I mean, my dad used to hide in the closet when the mailman came because mm-hmm. it was a, yeah. well, if you understand that maybe tolerance fits in somehow. And again, like I said, respected. I think yeah. that that is so important for people mm-hmm. in the industry. Yeah, yeah. And the respect for everybody's point of view. Yeah, definitely. So tell us something um, besides your, your childhood, which was fascinating. So tell us something about you that might surprise you. Is there a fun fact you can share about yourself that most people don't know? Oh, let's see. I probably, I started drinking at an early age. I think I was three. Um, when my mother allowed beer and wine or my grandpa's <laughs> beach. Um, a surprising fact, I'm an absolute total introvert. I am scared to death of walking into a cocktail party. I absolutely know that... If I were to go to a dance, no one would ask me to dance. I think that meeting strangers is my nightmare. Mm. I, groups, I, yeah. I just, I'm not comfortable. Yeah. Internally, I am not comfortable. And I think people are always very surprised at that because I form relationships quickly. Mm-hmm. Genuinely love meeting new people. Once I figure out that actually they like me. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that is true. I, I, that's, that's great. That's a, that's a, that is a good fact about you. So, um, so I know you um, obviously from the event industry. So let's talk a little bit about how that came to be. Um, you, um, you, how you started in the industry and, and what it eventually evolved into for you. It's sort of the story of the industry as well. Let's uh-huh. go back to the 70s before a lot of people who are going to be listening to this were in diapers. Uh, I had gone back to school for a master's degree in criminal psychology, and I had just divorced, and my husband was a deadbeat. Sorry, Bob. And child support. He's not going to listen to this, so I'm not worried about it. Uh, Sorry, Bob. I didn't add in the Santa Monica Evening Outlook, which said Westside Entertainment Agency needs part-time help. And I went, ooh, William Morris Agency, I'm going to be casting Faye Dunaway and Kirk Douglas in movies. How exciting. It's a Jewish band leader who did weddings and bar mitzvahs, and I worked for $2 an hour out of his back bedroom, and he didn't trust me to answer the phones. I just typed and filed. But musicians came in all the time, and they were fun, and they were upbeat, and here I was dealing with criminals and gang members, and, you know, when it, when I was at, at work, and it allowed me to have time for, you know, flexible hours to go to school and to take care of my son, um, 
and it was fun. But then I went out to save the world. Uh, note, I didn't. <laughs> and after a couple years of either someone trying to kill me, themselves, someone else, I was pretty depressed. I was not being a good mother. I was not being a happy person. And the band leader said, you know, I've been thinking about what you've always been talking about, that there's really no industry here and there's lots of opportunities. So if you'd like to come back and work at this again, free reign to do whatever you'd like. And I said, oh, okay. Um, that sounds good. So a little more than $2 an hour at that point. <laughs> I said, as long as we have an office, I don't want to work out of the back bedroom. So we got an office. What I didn't realize was that uh, he really had never had a vacation in the two years that I had gone. So he didn't trust anybody. So I was finally allowed to answer phones. And the very first week I went back to work, I got a call from Marsh McClellan Insurance Company. Mm -hmm. And we recommended to them by the Los Angeles Hilton Hotel, which doesn't exist anymore. It's something else. And this gentleman said, well, it's our 200-year anniversary, and we'd like to do something special. And he, of course, had been recommended to us to hire a band. And I went, oh, we should do a bicentennial theme. And he said, well, what is that? And I went, oh, my God, I have no clue. I just <laughs> And I started spitting off a few things, and he said, sounds fabulous. And he gave me, hold on to your seat, the biggest amount of money that everybody was astounded by, $3,000. Okay, seventy. And what it was, it was a Paul Revere statue surrounded by ferns, a gazebo with abandoned red and white striped jackets, which I didn't realize Dixie Lynn and 200 years ago were not really synonymous. <laughs> and red, white, and blue balloons. And the hotel went, wow, a theme party. What else can you do? So together with the legendary John Daly, who I had met during the time that my boss the band leader had been gone. We started going, oh, we could really have some fun. And we created a Mexican theme party with Tijuana Brass Band and a summer in the park with a big tree growing out of the middle. And then Super Bowl came to LA and we went wild with everybody wanting different parties. So we became like the theme party. That was around the time the Bonaventure Hotel opened. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we went down there to pitch them on the idea of doing this great opening party because people were being brought in from all over the country. And we suggested, because no matter what, at that time, LA was really known for Hollywood. We should do a Hollywood party. What's that? Not really sure, but we want to do it. And we described what was basically a red carpet, stanchions, tinsel, <laughs> band playing Hollywood show tunes and a Marilyn Monroe lookalike singing happy birthday to somebody we hoped. <laughs> they said, oh no, the executives will never go for that. It's too out there. Mm -hmm. And John to this day remembers because he wanted to kill me. I said, I'll tell you what, let us do it. And if you don't like it, you don't have to pay for it. So we did it. Mm -hmm. But 
and off we went into the world of theme parties, which up until that time, nobody was doing. Uh, fast forward and powwow, the travel agent nightmare of people who eat too many shrimp, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the Biltmore Hotel said, you're doing all these theme events here, but we know you're doing them over at the Bonaventure. What can we do that's different for our crowd? And I said, could hire a headliner. And they went, who? And I went, haven't got a clue, but we'll come up with some ideas. So we finally suggested and secured Larry Gatlin and the Gatlin brothers, who was the Garth Brooks of the day. Mm-hmm. So we hired him. I went through the writer. I'd never read one before. Didn't know what it said. Signed off on everything. Paid too much for the act. They got to town. During sound check, Steve, Larry's brother, said to me, by the way, I should warn you that if there's any noise in the room, Larry will not perform. He'll walk off the stage. Gravelly. Oh <laughs> 3,000. <000. laughs> I went, okay. So right before they went on and I had met Larry, I said, look, I'm a single mother to a small child. My career in this town is just beginning. If you walk off this stage, no one will ever hire me again. Mm -hmm. Don't walk off the stage. Okay, I'll do the best I can. He was very sweet. He got on the stage immediately after he started. You see beer bottles being thrown across the room, hooting and hollering. And he looked at me, and I don't know if you can see this, but it was like... Uh-huh. <laughs> went up on stage, put his arm around me, and I still have a picture of that. And he said, folks, I want to talk to you about what can't happen here. I promised this woman who told me her career would be over if you were rowdy that I would do this performance. So settle down so I don't have to walk off this stage. Oh my God. They did settle down completely, but they did some and we got through it. And then suddenly it was like competition for who could do bigger headliners in the city. And at the time, like I was a founding member of MPI, a founding mm-hmm. of site when there were like 50, 60, 80 members of these things started, I well, ISIS at the time, now Ilea, uh-huh. mm-hmm. was on the board of all of them, president of some of them at various times. And really the industry started growing and growing and growing and growing. And if you take a look at what it is now versus the 70s, there were trios and quartets for bands. There was a hotel linen, which was an eighth of an inch off the side of a table. Mm-hmm. There were in the middle. And overhead screen projectors that was it there wasn't light linen uh we started in the world of props and building props which if you looked at them now were almost comical they were cartoony compared to av almost didn't exist the first time we did lighting i think was for the air force ball at the beverly hilton hotel we set a tree on fire (laughs) yeah you just look at all that stuff and you go today's world cannot imagine that a relatively short time ago Mm -hmm. none of this existed these careers did not exist right 
Oh my gosh, there's so many good stories. I'm just like oh. hanging on every word because I, it's just, it was like the great, you know, the Wild West back then, wasn't it? It just, not, you know, anything went. I mean, you were just, you were trying everything because it was, it was new. Nobody knew to say yes or no. You know, it was just the well, idea of here's an idea and let's see if we can make it happen. The funny thing was, I do remember the first. It was called a Hollywood screen test party where we were totally interactive and guests, we built little mini sound stages that guests could do a screen test on. And I remember the client saying to me, well, what if it doesn't work? And I went, there's no one except you and me here mm -hmm. who know could happen and should happen. Mm -hmm. And if none of it does happen, you've got a room full of decor and a lot of food and music and people will have a great time. Yeah. So they won't know. It'll just be you and me. But it did happen, and it was remarkable. But yeah. it was taking risks because it had not been done before. And that was, right. that was the fun of it, mm -hmm. experimenting and dreaming and going, oh, let me, let me create my own little movie here on what could mm -hmm. happen. I always, even from the beginning, looked at an event the same as I look at a piece of theater. Mm -hmm. It couldn't be static. It had to have an overture, several acts, and then a finale. But mm -hmm. people leaving, and if they did, they will have missed something. Yeah. You know, something yeah. for people to talk about. Right. Right. Yeah. One of the best pieces of advice I got when I was young in my career, I, I started my career at the University of San Diego in alumni relations, and I managed the event portfolio for the university. And so we were doing this big awards dinner for our graduate, for our alums and the producer who had done a lot of work in Hollywood actually, and had been a part of the Mike Douglas show. He, um, he used to do all the interviewing for the guests before Mike would, would, interview them on the show. And, and so he said to me, um, when we were talking about the event we were producing, he said, Nicole, what do you want them to say in the car on the way home? And I, you know, at 24 was like, I don't even know what you're talking about. Right. And he's like, because human nature is that when people get in a car and they've just had a shared experience that, that they need to talk about it. Right. So, you know, when you're in a car and you've just had something, inevitably the conversation is going to be the food was delicious or that band was great or, oh my gosh, the registration was a nightmare or, you know, gosh, I worked for that company for 20 years. I've never felt so appreciated. You know, so he said, your job as the event producer is to be the puppeteer of that conversation. And that stuck with me for till this day. I mean, I still ask my clients to this day, what do you want your guests to say in the car on the way home? Because it's such an important question because it takes us all the way to the end and then we can work backwards to plan, right? And so, um, you know, it sounds, you know, sort of in line with what you're saying about creating that, that experience for your guests. It's interesting that you say that because when I started Extraordinary Events um, 31 years ago and I completely redid our initial inquiry forms. The mm -hmm. first question, other the name and phone number and who referred, mm -hmm. is what do you want people to say when they leave? Mm -hmm. Because find the experience. Yep. Yep. 
And for me, it wasn't about getting in the car because at the time we were doing events that were like, what are you going to say when they get in the elevator? Yeah, right. And the funny thing is we would prompt people by actually putting people in the elevator to start conversations or out in the ballet line. So my feeling was that just because the event was over, the event wasn't over. Mm-hmm. It was a totally different concept for people too. It's like, you want to do what? Yeah. No, yeah. The, last, the, the last touch point is the last memory. If they're waiting in line for an hour, that is mm-hmm. all member. Yeah. You know, yeah. so it has to be a complete experience from beginning to end. So it's fascinating that you say that because yeah. it is critical to yeah. Right. And I, and I see that, um, you know, younger planners, inexperienced planners, I should say, you know, for them, it's the, it's the bright colors and the, and the lights and the, you know, they want to talk about linen colors and, you know, catering menus and all of that is absolutely crucial. I mean, that's important to the work that we do, but, but they're missing the bigger conversation, which is, you know, that question that you and I are both asking our clients in terms of what really is the experience that you are trying to create here? Not what is the color of the linen, not as what is the menu? All of those details will work itself out based on the answer to the question. You know, what do you want them to say? Absolutely. And, and to everybody go, well, what is the wow moment? And I go, it's not nearly as important to me as what is the emotional moment which is the mm-hmm. to what's going on. If I see mm-hmm. someone cry for the right reason, of course, yeah, <laughs> I know that they've been touched. And I look at fundraisers, which so often are so distanced from the cause mm-hmm. of funds for. Yeah. Or even corporate, which is statistic-driven versus connecting people to their product and letting them know that they are important to the process. Mm-hmm. But those are the moments that I think if, if a client can define those, then you have a platform, mm-hmm. things relevant and experiential. Otherwise, you know, you could be watching a movie. Yeah, exactly. And and I think even more heightened in this day and age where everything is going virtual. I mean, you have to have this, you have to understand the story that's being told in, in that virtual experience, right? You need to understand the outcome you still want your guests to have at the end of that virtual experience. It's not just about having them, you know, eyeballs sitting in front of a screen and watching something virtual. There still needs to be those key event elements, albeit there might not be linen colors and catering menus that we have to deal with in virtual, but we still have to still be designers of an experience. Um, Things that is happening with virtual and hopefully, I mean, I'm getting tired of hearing about the drive-ins. Okay. The drive-in graduation, the drive-in concert. Okay. It's not new anymore. So people, oh, I've got a new idea. It's not. (laughs) But what is happening, I think, is the idea that virtual can still get groups together in different places and let an experience with selected others. And I was reading in an industry trade of some sort, and I thought it was fascinating, that they had created different rooms. And within each room, there were like three tables that were very distanced from each other, but the each table consisted of people who knew each other and were comfortable mm-hmm. being. And 
I thought that was great because, yes, the experience was virtual in the way that the speakers were being broadcast to each room. Or a Cindy Lowe in Austin, I think it was Cindy, but it was a virtual meeting, but everybody had dinner delivered. No, I'm sorry, it was in San Diego. Forgive me. It was for YPO. Uh, uh-huh. And Rebecca Wright told me about it, that it was wild time catering, actually. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Dinner to everybody who was on the Zoom call or the virtual call. So they all got the same dinner, albeit with, you know, dietary preferences. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But they same experience. It was a dinner party that they all participated in. And people who are doing things like that are thinking a little bit beyond the talking heads. Yeah. I made personal. Right. I agree. And I and I think it's important for the industry also to recognize that this is not just a band-aid that's getting us over the hump of, you know, life pre-COVID and post-COVID. I mean, the way that people have embraced technology um, because they've been forced to is that's going to be a, a, you know, that's going to be an added responsibility for event planners going forward. There's no going back. You know, I, I was, I was interviewing Anthony Bellotta. Yes. Uh, recently, uh, you know, you and I share him as a, as a friend and colleague. And we were talking about the fact that, you know, even if you're doing a wedding, having uh, the capacity to, you know, include something virtual, maybe for friends and family who can't physically be in the location, but yet how do we incorporate them? So they feel like they're a part of it and not just watching something, you know, through a screen. And so, all elements of the, the industry really need to get very comfortable with, with virtual. And they need to do it well. I think, mm-hmm. I think the downfall is going to be that, again, when the economy gets like it is now, mm-hmm. everybody can, becomes a one-stop shop. So every caterer is now full service and can yeah. do things. And I not just caterers, but decorators, uh, florists. Everybody does everything. AV company, pull out event planning. You can do your travel. It's happened during each recession, mm-hmm. or although it's at its worst now. And my fear is that people will become afraid of doing virtual events because someone who really doesn't know what they're doing, or someone, mm-hmm. will do them badly. Yeah. They, Enormous potential, but they also have enormous potential for disengagement because mm-hmm. we are in a world where the attention spans are very small. So trying to do one-hour meetings, you know, with just talking heads and no breaks and no entertainment or no anything, people are going to walk away and go to the refrigerator. Yeah. You know, or make mm-hmm. a phone call or check emails. Mm-hmm. Unless you can keep them engaged because they're not going to have the lasers. They're not going to have the fabulous AV presentations. They won't have those wow factors. Mm-hmm. And they're not going to have anybody next to them to talk to, to go, oh, did you see that? Right. So it's very much going to be a challenge that has to be met to think of interesting ways to hold the audience. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So if you were advising someone who is trying to break into the industry at this point, what advice do you, do you give them at you now knowing what you know and, and also being, you know, acutely aware of the world we now live in. So what advice do you have for, for new event planners? 
I think where we began the conversation actually is to have a full respect for every single person that's part of your entire project. And I don't Mm -hmm. care someone rolling in a speaker system or whether it's the president of a company. Mm -hmm. You understand that everybody has a place in what goes on and um, acknowledging that I think is really key. I've seen a lot of people treat it very badly mm-hmm. and especially by a young person who's not secure in their own position. Mm-hmm. thing would be to, and my stepfather, I, I respected him more for this one thing, but he said the biggest lesson in life, the biggest learning is to know how little you know. Mm. And I think it's important for someone in the beginning in the industry to acknowledge to themselves, I'm an open, I'm an unwritten book. Mm -hmm. I need to listen to everybody and everything, accept advice, learn from them, acknowledge that I've learned from them, uh, treat everybody kindly, Mm -hmm. but... Pretend that I know nothing and respect everybody who knows more than I do and learn, constantly, constantly learn. It's hard when you've got Google and you think, and I can give you a very classic example of a former employee. Now, I judge the um, Colorado Event Awards. So I know every great florist, I've seen their work and I've seen all the entertainers and the caterers and what they present because I get to judge them. Sure. We're doing an event in Denver and as we're doing a kind of a talk through about a month before to see where we're at and I said, okay, so we have a set that's going to be made out of flowers. Where did you get the florist? Oh, I Googled them. Mm-hmm. But you are aware, <laughs> judging for the last 10 years, the awards, and I know every great florist, why would you not ask me? Mm-hmm. Now, this, of course, leads to your big ask, right? Yes, yes, perfect. Good segue. Okay. <laughs> and I know why they wouldn't, because they don't want, a young person in particular does not mm-hmm. want to, they don't know. So mm-hmm. they do something themselves, then ask for help. Right. Well, to me, that's not asking for help. This is my company. I want it to be the mm-hmm. best. B, you should want it to be the best. Well, if I tell you that the flowers did not show up, now, our, I was not there. <sighs> Would you think that when the flowers didn't show up, even though it was late at night, maybe a phone call to me would have been, the flowers didn't show up. Do you know anybody who can help? Mm-hmm. No. Oh, no. <laughs> From bad to worse. Did not ask. Okay. So what is the big ask? Asking. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Not assuming yeah. that if you ask a question, it will show a weakness. It does mm-hmm. exactly the opposite. It shows a strength. Yeah. It shows respect someone else. It it shows that you are coming out of this ownership 
of, I can't ask for help. You need to ask for help, all of us. I mean, look at how long this. I wouldn't hesitate in going to anybody that I know. And and you know from the whole how how Dokumazu, you know? The, yeah. The reunions, the, the questions everybody is asking of each other. We're just talking about newbies. Yeah. We're talking about very experienced professionals who mm-hmm. have trouble saying, putting out there to everybody, I need help with this. Mm-hmm. Who does that? Yeah. 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 I think that's the magic of, um, so, so for the sake of everyone listening, Andrea and I had a shared experience, um, at the end of 2019, um, where we were part of a, an event that was called secret family reunion produced by the team out of Austin with hot Dokimozo. and, um, attendees arrived in New York city and had no idea where they were headed on an airplane, uh, just within a couple hours of the big reveal party. Uh, so the, so off we all went to Tuscany and we had a four or five day sort of mastermind, um, immersion experience for, um, for business owners and, and event professionals. And the majority of us in the, in those rooms were, as you say, you know, more seasoned and yet one of the most powerful um, outcomes of that experience of all traveling together, you know, yes, we had wonderful moments in, in Italy and that was all fantastic, but the community of people, I think that has been, fostered from that experience. And even to this day, you know, nine months later, six months later, whatever we are, you know, our WhatsApp group is still incredibly active. It's amazing. I mean, you know, when people first get back from, you know, summer camp, you know, everyone's all enthusiastic, but then people eventually fade and life goes on. But this group has been incredibly committed to um, just being a community of people. And and to your point about asking for help, it's been so great to see that any of us at any level can pop a question in and we get some amazing resources and advice and, and wisdom back. And, and you just can't put a price tag on having that as a resource um, in your business life and in your personal life too. You know, it's such, it's such amazing. It's, it's really amazing what was created out of that, out of that experience. Pause for just one second. Yeah. But yeah, no, I totally agree with you. It's a perfect example of no one, no one who was there of the 80 plus people there mm-hmm. ever think that they were disempowered by showing that they didn't know something. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's been important. And you, you do such a beautiful job of facilitating the, 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 um, the business owners round table as well, which is really important to have people who are uh, truly business owners and have, you know, that's a very unique role. It's a lot easier to work for somebody else, you know, and, but when it's suddenly you and the responsibility of, you know, other paychecks, um, it's important that you're in a room of people who understand that. And so I've been, you know, very grateful to sit in on those sessions that you have led about that because it is, it's a uniqueness of being a business owner. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, uh, let's talk a little bit about your big ask. And since we'll, we'll, we will segue into that now. So um, is there been a time in your life when you've um, had to make a big ask and sort of how did you prepare and what did that big ask look like? I really didn't. I think that I, I can't say I had a big ask ever except of my 
when I separated from uh, my ex-business partner and started Extraordinary Events. Legally, I couldn't ask anybody for anything because it wasn't legal to do so. But what I asked of myself, which I think is something we all forget, is for the patience and the tolerance. You have to give yourself when something isn't an immediate return. Mm -hmm. So I left a company that was thriving to go into the unknown. And I asked of my family the same patience to know that I was probably never going to be home, <laughs> that I was not going to have an income. As a result, I also had an enormous lawsuit, which took up a lot of our savings. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a lot to ask of people. And it was hard because I was scared to death mm -hmm. that nothing would happen. And also um, that I couldn't tell anybody what had happened or what. But I did not ask for money because I didn't want to repay it. Uh, I didn't want to have that kind of a burden. Mm -hmm. So everything charged on credit cards, you know. And uh, friends were lovely enough to give me office equipment and things like that uh, in the days where you could live with one computer in an office. Yeah. So I'm not sure that the ask is always external. Mm -hmm. In my case, it was very much internal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, some, and, and, and I would add that that oftentimes is the most important starting point. You know, before you could then make any big external ask, you had to really settle within yourself and, and make those asks of yourself. You do. It's, it's coming to terms with, again, risk-taking. Mm -hmm. And what you're real, what you're made of. Yeah. What you believe in and what mm -hmm. you do. Um, it was really important to me to be able to put out to the community, not only, oh, gee, she's known for creativity, but I also wanted the ability to say no to things mm -hmm. that I felt mm -hmm. Embrace doing something for nothing if I chose to. Mm -hmm. You know, not being obligated to do something wrong or unethical mm -hmm. or bad taste just because a client wanted it. Yeah. Which I think is also a lesson for young people. You don't have to say yes to everything. Right. Mm -hmm. I remember doing, um, <laughs> it was when special event came to Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. The galas had been kind of ugh, for a while. And I volunteered sort of whole <laughs> thing. But what I said was, you have to leave it entirely in my hands. Just give me whatever budget you've got and ask no questions. I cannot be told what to do. I need to do it right. And all along the way, well, these people have offered to donate this and someone wants to donate that. And it kept going. And I thought, just because it's free doesn't mean I'm going to use it. And the answer is no. Yeah. It's going to be perfect as it can be in my mind 
you have to say no if it's wrong. Yeah, yeah. And somehow we're always afraid to do that, and we're afraid mm-hmm. to, with the client. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And, 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 and early in your business, too, you're always so afraid to say no to any piece of business. And, and, you know, and your gut will always tell you that that's not the piece of business that you want to be taking. And yet you look at the number or whatever that might be, and you suddenly, you know, you, you find yourself down a path that you knew was going to be a disaster. It's never, you know, there's never enough money in the world sometimes for the right, they're the wrong client or the wrong project. Let me, let me, if you have, do we have time for me to give yes. you a story? Okay. Sure. Um, a very high profile company from New York with a very, very um, New York style gentleman leading their team, uh, doing an event at a ranch outside of Palm Springs in summer. <laughs> uh, entertainment, a little bit of decor, just food, nice, fun party, and wanted to end it with fireworks. Kind of looked at the ranch and went, okay, there's a lot of dry brush around, so ordered several water trucks and hired a really top-notch professional fireworks company. Client, Mr. New York, then came and said, the president of our company saw something and he wants you to hire them. It's a biplane, which is a low flyby with pyro coming off the wings. <laughs> and I said, I don't know them. I've never seen them. I won't do this. Mm-hmm. Now, if you want this piece of business, this is what the president wants. Mm-hmm. No. Well, finally, I got beaten down against my better judgment, and they had no insurance. They were a fly-by-night company, and so I'm standing there with the guys from Pyrotechnics, and we call off the queue to start the plane, and I hear him say, hire no, oh no, go higher. <laughs> higher. There's one road into this ranch. One road. The entire horseshoe around it goes up in flames. Oh, God. <laughs> I a blanket. The pyro guys grab blankets. But the client is standing behind me screaming, You did this. This is your fault. Oh like, I didn't, I didn't want them. Yeah. I told them. And in the meantime, my eyelashes are being singed off. Yeah. <laughs> You're going to scream, go away, scream at me tomorrow. We need to put right. it. We evacuated 300 people. Oh my gosh. Should I have said no and passed on the job? Of course I should have. Now, the next day during general meeting, they should a video of it and played Disco Inferno. Okay, so they made light of it. But then they wanted to sue me. And I went, no, I have in writing. I'm advising you not to do this. They don't have insurance. I'm not responsible for what they do. Mm-hmm. And nothing happened as a result of it. I, of course, never saw a piece of business from them again, nor would right. I want but I did say no. Right. I almost burned down Palm Springs. 
<laughs> well, that would be one way to be, be even a bigger legend you, than you already are. So, <laughs> but I think it also speaks to the importance of like vendor relationships. I'm sure you have a really solid group of vendors that you work with and the importance of sometimes the client, you know, people always say the client is always right. And there's been times in my career where I've had to tell the client, no, I'm not, I'm not going to the vendor and asking them to make that big of a discounted discount on their, you know, on their, on their invoice. Or, you know, I always love, well, if they want to do business with us in the future, then they, you know, need to sweeten the pot now. And, and, you know, these are the, these vendor teams are the teams that show up with you event after event after event, the clients, you know, sometimes come and go. Um, and just that importance of having those really strong vendor relationships is so and crucial in our industry. I could pretty much promise that when someone says, you, if you don't do this, you'll never see another piece of business. If you do do this, you'll never see another piece yeah. of business. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah, it's uncanny. I totally agree with you. It's, it is the relationships that you have and you nurture yeah, you're you're leading to a point which I think is critical, and that is to get everything in writing, mm-hmm. because I guarantee that when you don't, it will bite you. You will lose money. The client will get you every single time if you mm-hmm. don't put in writing whatever it is. If you advise them not to do something, if you say, "Oh, sure, we'll be happy to add that on," and you mm-hmm. don't commemorate it in writing, they yep. will. Never Remember it, and you will not get money for it. Yep. Convenient amnesia is what I like to refer to it as. When the client, when we've had the conversation, the client agrees to it, and then all of a sudden it's convenient amnesia when the bill actually comes in or, you know, when another decision has to be made. So I, I agree with you completely. I'm a big fan of, uh, of you know, getting doing emails so that everything is in, in writing. You know, you just have that backup because it – and the the time that you learn the lesson the hardest is that one time you didn't do it, and it's really that key piece of information that you that you need. And and interestingly enough, I think it's probably something important to point out, particularly when someone is an employee. Mm-hmm. Very easy when it's not your money. Yeah. Let things like that flip and go. Oh, I just didn't have time, or they asked me and it was late, and I needed to go home, mm-hmm. or the excuse might be when it's not your money mm-hmm. you can be very careless but being an employee means you have to think like an employer mm-hmm. that's when you're valuable to the company yeah or about it as much as if it were your own yeah definitely a hard thing for people to learn especially yeah at- yeah, I agree. Now, um, I know you wrote a book called Reflections of a Successful Wallflower, Lessons in Business. Uh, so what precipitated you writing that? Oh, all the various stories, which, of course, as soon as I finished the book, I remembered the one I most wanted to put in there, but it's <laughs> already in a hardcover. I think that business and life are very connected and mm-hmm. to me, being a psychologist by trade, an event planner by trade, the commonality was really important. So what could mm-hmm. you learn from life that would do you good when you did business and vice versa? Mm-hmm. There were so many stories. I did it totally for me. I did not do it to sell. 
I never cared if it sold a copy or not. It just, I love to write. Mm-hmm. And I'm a good writer. And that's the way I am most comfortable expressing myself. So the fact that I wanted to remember these various stories, because all of them had a twist of some sort or another, and people would go, are you kidding me? Mm-hmm. Really? But it was just a lot of fun. I did it in three months. Mm-hmm on a plane or in the middle of the night or whenever I felt like doing it. Mm -hmm. And it was just, just strictly something that was self-satisfying. Yeah. That's wonderful. (laughs) Yes. How uh, at the at the height of your career um, were you a, a, a million miler on American Airlines or anything? Were you? No, because I always take the cheapest flight. (laughs) That's a courtesy to my client. The only time I ever use miles is for my own personal miles if I want vacation or something like that. But it was something that was charged to the client. I looked for the lowest fare, so it could be any airline anywhere. So I never much. I did accumulate American Express points. Yes, good. Yeah. Yeah. In the, I think two and a half million, and of course you can't fly where right now. Of course, yeah, I know, I know. My gosh, of course, of course. So, well, I have enjoyed every minute of listening to your stories, Andrea. I mean, they're just I, this could be easily a four-part series of just listening to your stories of the industry. So, thank you for sharing those. And and um, as I mentioned to you, we always close every episode with um, some rapid-fire questions. So, these are intended to just be fun. First thing that you think about, no pressure, no judgment. Okay? So, okay. So, question number one is uh, title of your lifetime movie. She did it first. Mm -hmm. If you could change places with any celebrity right this minute, who would it be? Oh, probably Oprah. Mm -hmm. When do you feel happiest? I have four hawks living in my backyard that I am making friends with. I am happiest being in my garden, watching trees grow, picking fruit, watching birds fly. Oh, that's great. Next to seeing my grandchildren. Yes. And is that who's standing? I can see you're behind you in um, the screen. Is that your, are those your children and grandchildren? That's from Christmas in Utah. It's my daughter-in-law and my two grandsons. Oh, that's great. Um, All right. If you were running for politics, what would be your biggest campaign promise? To open my arms to immigration because without it, I wouldn't be here and everyone same chance that I got. Yeah. Ultimate dinner party, which four guests do you invite and why? Do they have to be alive? They don't. And they don't even have to be real. They could be characters. No. All right. Well, number one, and I wouldn't care if anybody else came at all, would be Queen Elizabeth I. Mm Mm-hmm. And I would spend a lifetime just understanding her and leadership and all that. Um, Maybe Superman. I think it would be fun to understand how he does what he does and what he feels like. You know, he's the most real of the superheroes to me. The rest of them are like too costumey and... One inventor, and I'm not even sure which one, who came up with 
a concept of maybe it's the telephone or electricity or I still don't understand why a plane flies. Yeah. And I would love to have a conversation with Elon Musk and Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos and understand if what's really important to them and how much of it is real and how much of it is lip service. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. Awesome. A little bit bigger of a dinner party. I'm sorry. We have maybe eight places. Okay. <laughs> I love it. That's awesome. All right. Right this minute, you have to get a tattoo. What do you get and why? I get my son's name because I always want to remember him. Okay. Perfect. What is your biggest pet peeve in business? Lies. What is your wish for the next generation? That they get off their devices and look other people in the eye and communicate mm. human to human. So perfect. When does your light shine the brightest? When someone says, I need an idea. Perfect. And then what is your big ask, either personal or professional, right this minute, and how can we help you? Oh, my big ask right now is don't ask me for the details of why I shut down or what my future plans are. Just give me some peace. I've been at this for more than 40 years with hardly day off. Mm -hmm. Just relax and enjoy my time. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect. Well, as somebody who has um, benefited from your legacy in the industry by watching your career and um, having opportunities opened that you were, you know, pioneering generations ahead of me, I so appreciate everything you've done for our industry and how you really created a profession out of what most people always thought was just a hobby. So, um, so I thank you so much, Andrea, for, for your time today, but most importantly for just your contribution to um, our industry and for making all of us better. Thank you. May I add someone to my dinner party? Of course. <laughs> all right. I absolutely idolize Michael Jordan, who I think has a commitment to winning at all costs, a work ethic that is unparalleled. Mm -hmm. I have no idea what on earth I could ever talk to him about, but I think you'll find something. Yeah. Similarities. I just, thank you. I just would think the presence alone would inspire me. It always has. Yes. Well, that's great. Well, thank you so much, Andrea. I appreciate you saying yes to my ask of uh, being on um, the big ask. So thank you so much. You're very, very welcome. Thanks. This was a pleasure. Thank you. Oh, you're so sweet. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Big Ass Podcast. Like what you heard? Subscribe to and share the podcast with your friends. And be sure to connect with me on social at Miss Nicole Matthews or at Big Ass Podcast. Until next time, let today be the day you make a big ask. Big Ass.